Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. One of the things that we can tolerate the least as humans, because this maps onto our, at one point, our safety as a species, is uncertainty. We don't like not knowing. And we can evidence this every day when we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And a lot of us hate that to the extent that we imagine and we prepare in our minds for this time that's not here yet. Right? So when we don't know, when there's a question mark, our mind does what it always does. It, it, appear, it thinks it's keeping us safe. It spins the story. Hey everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Welcome back to Real Pod. You are in for such a special treat today because we are truly being graced by a one-of-a-kind human being, and that is Dr. Nicole LaPera, more popularly known as The Holistic Psychologist. She has over 3 million people who follow her teachings online. I am one of them, proudly, and you all should be. Her teachings focus on the connection between the mind and body. It's a very interesting and cool approach because she views mental and physical struggles from a whole person perspective and works to identify the underlying physical and emotional causes. Nicole is truly incredible and the stuff she talks about is stuff I'd never really heard about before, right? Our ego and not just being cocky and full of yourself, but being insecure and developing a voice and a narrative around your life to protect you or to keep you small, right? We all have a voice inside of our head that says negative things and can be really hard on us. And all of her work really helps you do that inner work to heal from all of the things that have shaped you, both negative and positive, negatively and positively, I should say, as you have developed as a human being on this planet. So I'm very excited for today's episode. The very last thing I want to say before we jump in is if you are not familiar with Dr. LaPera's work, this stuff can seem scary at first and there can seem like a lot that she's talking about. So I really suggest you do dive into her content. Her Instagram is such a must follow. It is the.holistic.psychologist. I'm obsessed if you can tell. And her YouTube channel. Go to her YouTube channel and you can watch her videos for free and her teachings are just so mind-blowing. So don't get overwhelmed if you're not familiar with this and it seems like a lot. This is all such interesting, fascinating stuff that is all a part of our inner 
journeys as we work on healing. Without further ado, please help me welcome today's phenomenal guest, Dr. Nicole LaPera, the holistic psychologist. are live with Dr. Nicole LaPera. Thank you so much for joining. I truly feel like I'm being graced by some holy being who is all-knowing. Do you get that a lot? (laughs) I'm I'm blushing and I'm honored and definitely do not consider me all-knowing. I appreciate it. Uh, My goal actually is to inspire you, Victoria, and all the other humans who listen to my work to become the all-knowing being that I know them to be. So thank you. I mean, I'm truly honored to have a chat with you and connect now with your community. Of course. And it really has been so helpful. Just everything you, you talk about and some of the things I'm just thinking my whole life, I've had an ego and I've had no idea that it's been there. I'm like, (laughs) Oh, that's my anxiety. (laughs) Yeah. Same. I, I, my whole life. And then I can further that by a large significant amount of my training, uh, clinically clinical psychology, Shockingly, a lot of the things that I'm talking about weren't really taught to me, or at least not in these words that are, I believe, much more understandable for many of us so that we can have these realizations like, oh, right, that voice in my head, A, that's there, and B, that's called my ego, and it's not always helpful. So I'm really happy that you've come to that realization. Of course. And I want to dive into all that because it is so much to take in, so much to understand. Before we go there, I just want to know what brought you and led you to your work? Was this a passion you always had, psychology, um, holistic psychology, but what sort of made you gravitate towards the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I understand uh, that instinctually I was very, as long as I can remember, Victoria, really interested in people and what made people different and what made people do what they do different than the way I do or I think. So I think intuitively I was always marching in the direction of, you know, psychology uh, as, you know, when, when whatever the age is where people start to ask you what you're going to do, that's what I would say I was going to do. I was really fascinated. Um, however, the way that my work looks now is different than the way that my work started out. So as an individual, as a human, I was also a consumer of psychological services. I'm someone who sounds like maybe similar to you. I've had an experience of anxiety. I'm very familiar with anxiety for as long as I can remember. So flash forward, you know, I'm in my early 30s. I have this practice. I'm doing the thing. I'm somewhat managing my own anxiety. And what I, what I come to now retrospectively realize is I went through what a lot of us are now calling a dark night of the soul. Um, essentially, my whole world came crashing down uh, in terms of I had some physical symptoms that were really scary. I'd started to faint out of nowhere. I'd started to forget words mid-sentence. Uh, emotionally, I was just really numb and not feeling really much of anything uh, and just really largely unsatisfied. So my own dark night of the soul led me into this whole world of what started out as research. Um, as a lot of us do, trying to diagnose what the hell could be wrong with me, I met a lot of important information that I was not aware of, of the body that all of us are living in in, as part of this human experience that, oh, we are not just this mind that so many of us thought we were. A lot of us lived from our thinking mind. And so that's when I really shifted and began to work like I call holistically now. Do you feel like that, and you're saying dark night of the soul, do you feel like that 
sort of fall to, you know, the depths of darkness is necessary to have some sort of enlightenment because I feel like until I experienced my really dark period of depression, I wasn't asking myself questions. And it's like, I don't love, I, I didn't love those times, but I couldn't imagine who I'd be if I didn't go into that place. Yeah. I like, I love that. I love that reframe after the fact, because I do believe it is in the depths of our darkness that a lot of us, you know, seeing no other way out become inspired to change or begrudgingly, you know, attempt to change because we are very habitual creatures. And even if, if our habits aren't serving us, we remain stuck in them because change is incredibly hard. So for a lot of us, it takes something to really shake us. Whether or not I would say, it, is it necessary for it to be the depths of darkness, like a dark night of the soul? Not necessarily, but I do think that, you know, something, you know, kind of comes to the surface and it looks different for each of us, what that is, that calls us into questioning, um, that allows us to then begin to entertain the possibility that our future could look different. And speaking of this, this, this dark place, so let's imagine, you know, the lowest a person could be. So maybe contemplating like, you know, why am I alive? And this reminds me of, you recommended the book, A New Earth to me. I absolutely love it. And Tole talks about getting to that place in his life and having a conversation of, I can't live with myself. And in that moment, having the, the awareness of, okay, there's two people in that sentence. There's the I and then the me. So who am I? And it led him to all this work of ego, which you talk a lot about. So how would you define ego? Yeah, the ego, really simply. And I talk a lot about ego, Victoria, because ego gets a really bad rap. Um, a lot of us, when we hear ego, a lot of us first just associated with egotistical, right? This idea, this person will make him an avatar, right? Who's all about me and is better than everyone, kind of is on their pedestal. Others think that this idea of ego is this bad thing and we have to kill it, eradicate it. You know, so I talk about ego because ego is quite natural. It is essentially really simply the story of ourselves, the story that we created based, in, as, based on an accumulation of our past experiences, right? For us, for many of us, it's a story about who we are, what we believe, how we relate to others in relationships, right? What our future will look like. I mean, there's many versions of this story. And what it becomes, and we come to the awareness of this, when we begin to observe our internal world, which is just tune in, it becomes the endless story we're telling ourselves and that we're filtering our experience through all day long, which is the large reason why we're stuck in that past. Because the more we tell ourselves the same story, the more we see the same story and we get more of that past experiences as opposed to telling ourselves the more complete story. So to use Tole, who I just think is so you know wise there is something else something greater for most of us our ego story is only one little part of who we are that emness that awareness beyond or what i call the consciousness the vastness that's who we are but we become so limited because we become stuck in only a portion of who we are or who we believe ourselves to be why does our ego develop and i feel like it would be hard for it almost not to because a conversation starter in our society. So tell me about your, tell me your story. Yeah. What yeah. do you, what's your story? And yeah. so you, you have to have one. Yeah. You almost get to develop an elevator pitch of it, but ego develops really early on in life, right? When we come to this planet, however it is that you think we get here, we are 
or a sponge is the best way to describe it. We are, our brain is set up to just take in the world around us. Really short and simply and even silly, we're taking in what it is to be human. We're learning. We're in what we call, to use the computer analogy, like a programming mode, right? So we're learning, you know, everything from how to behave, you know, how to be in this body, how to relate to others. So we're receptive and we're, we're so attuned. I should mention this as well. So we're not only picking up on what's directly being said to us, originating in our families, you know, our core units, expanding then out to our peer groups, our school, our friends, the society at large. So we're hearing, so many of us are hearing direct messages about who we are. You're like your dad, you're shy, or you're outgoing like mom, or you're a troublemaker like your brother. I mean, these are silly examples. Sometimes it's indirectly how we're made to feel in these environments. So our ego story is created. I mean, I can make an argument from before we're even on this planet when we're just an idea, you know, in our parents' mind. However, you know, for all our parents purposes, are already talking about who we're going to become before they even have us. Yes. I mean, you know, th yes, that is happening. I mean, we have people, you know, children imagining their, their children when they're not even an adult yet and what they're trying. You know, so this is how real this is. So ego stories develop at a very early age, um, usually in service of protecting us from something, from a painful experience, from overwhelming emotions, from a side of ourself that our parents told us was wrong and bad. So then we seek so much. It's so important when we're at that age because we're so dependent. We seek to fit ourselves into the story that allows us to remain connected to the people that are most important, our loved ones, the people that are caring for us. So ego starts very early on. And then what happens is we repeat those stories. Before we know it, we come to believe that is true about us. It's been so interesting to do this work and kind of lean into your teachings because I catch myself saying almost, it's like an assumption. I feel like I've heard this explained to me in a variety of ways, whether it was don't make assumptions or, you know, don't judge people. And that is all I think a disguised way of saying like your ego is trying to label things and do things. Um, and in kind of starting to explore and notice the voice, it's interesting how we jump to use whatever the memories are. So maybe it's patterns with someone in our family. And if my mom says very kindly, will you do the dishes? My thought is, I can't believe she thinks I do nothing around this house. And my mom thinks I'm a lazy piece of this. And, and all she said is, will you please yes. do the dishes? Yes, yes. So is that the ego? 100%. Yeah, that's the ego, right? All of the meaning. We have what is called one of the many functions that our brain so the brain is the organ, the mind, right, is the, is the functioning of, of the brain. There are so many, we have so many amazing things that we are gifted with as humans in terms of our mind. One of the predominant things our mind does is it creates narratives. It's what's called a narrative maker. Because the, the, one of the things that we can tolerate the least as humans, because this maps onto our, at one point, our safety as a species is uncertainty. We don't like not knowing. And we can evidence this every day when we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And a lot of us hate that to the extent that we imagine and we prepare in our minds for this time that's not here yet. Right? So when we don't know, when there's a question mark, our mind does what it always does. It, it, appear, it thinks it's keeping us safe. It spins the story. What you come to realize the more you pay attention to your stories, it's very patterned. So mine, very similar. Was, you know, I like to, one of my 
widely used narratives is this idea that I am not my word that I go to is considered this feeling. So I can apply that equally to dishes. So when dishes are left in my sink, right, this is how we are so subjective. I am infuriated or I used to be at my partner because the meaning I made of those dishes is that was an act of her not considering. So now I am hurt and a million other feelings as well when really there's just dishes on a sink. Right, so same thing. We have to pay attention to these meanings that we're assigning. How do we differentiate between coming up with a meaning that we that we just like you said we don't know it's true or not versus actually piecing patterns or actions or words from someone together and saying hmm, this could be mistreatment. You know, this could be actually some sort of whether verbal abuse or just they don't treat me right. Um, how do we know when, when that's the case or if our ego is assuming? I love that. I love that question because I get this question often. Okay, well, right, if I understand that everything is a meaning, the question understandably is, is that opening me up for abuse? I am of the belief that we all are gifted with an internal guidance system, for lack of a better word. It is called our, well, the word I use is, it's called our intuition. It is complete with even a sixth sense, right, that happens outside of our awareness, that's always online, it's always detecting our environment. That is what, that, when that is, when we have a limit that's violated, when we feel threatened, when someone does cross us verbally or maybe physically by touch, when we are in a state of threat, that system will always alert us. It'll tell us, it'll say, oh, this is really uncomfortable. We get to differentiate. So this is a very complicated answer because it is a bit more of a complicated you know, question. There isn't a protocol, right? We have to be able to tune in to that intuition, right? So that it can differentiate. What happens for most of us is we're caught up in a fight or flight response where everything feels unsafe. So the, the way to find that differentiation between is this abusive and I need to put a limit up happens when we find our way home back to that intuition when we balance our body when we balance say our nervous system so that then when i have a conversation with someone and they say something that puts me on alert i know that that's a problem anger you know those sort of feelings carry messages for us and so i assure you the more connected we are to our bodies and our intuition the more that system will let you know if that verbal thing that that person said is threatening to you you'll get that ping and then you'll be able to navigate accordingly. And in navigating that, you know, that would lead to boundary setting, possibly ending the relationship, Mm -hmm. boundary setting, which you talk a lot about and I love. Um, But I I always wonder, you know, how do I know is, is, isn't there some form of ego in boundary setting? Cause it's, I don't deserve X or I am, I am worthy of better. So I'm setting a boundary. So how do you kind of separate ego versus an appropriate boundary? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what a boundary is for me, it's, it's a zone of safety and security, right? And, and every I human has that, you know? So if, if we want to go into this idea, I think the, the deeper question here is, right, between, or the deeper, the deeper distinction is between oneness, right? And the inherent egoness that we are as separate humans, right? So yes, in some way, a boundary is me making a statement for my own protection, Um, But that's really what a boundary is aimed at. It's creating a space often in our relationships, sometimes in our relationship with ourselves, where I feel the safest to express myself 
authentically. And when we don't feel like we have that space in our relationships, then it's really important to create that for ourselves. So yes, we're focusing on the self when we're using boundary language, because that's a change for us. That is what I'm going to do differently, right? If and when this old dynamic happens in this relationship. So it is an I-based statement, um, but on the back end of it, it's aimed at creating a healthier relationship or oneness, if you will, in the relationship where you have two authentic humans relating as opposed to two people playing a function for each other. It's interesting because boundaries, I think, also have gotten a bad rap of so selfish or you take things too mm -hmm. seriously. I find it hard to create boundaries without either getting made fun of or getting some other person gets super offended with me. Um, when really, if I think both people, and I saw in one of your recent videos, you know, your friend told you her, she needed to go to bed early and you respected that. And I think two people need to sort of be like, once again, if that person's ego takes it as, oh my gosh, they think that you are too talkative, then it's very hard to have that oneness if someone's kind of not on the healing wavelength. Yeah. Absolutely. It's hard. And I get this question a lot too, you know, what do I do if my partner isn't on that wavelength or isn't healing or isn't, you know, kind of acknowledging the realities that I am now acknowledging in my life. And ultimately that's usually followed by a, how do I get them to some version of change, see, realize, do the work, right? And the unfortunate answer that I always at least give, because this is what I know to be true, is you can't, right? As complicated as that makes then relationships, you know, and difficult to navigate, the work really is individual. Someone has to want to do the work to show up differently in their life. I think that's true in all forms of life. I mean, whether it's just getting help or, I mean, if someone makes you go to therapy or makes you go to whatever it is, mm -hmm. if you don't sit there and actually try to change, yes. it doesn't matter that you're there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the commitment that it takes, um, which is another, you know, kind of shift that I made in the practice, I really came to realize that one hour a week, whether we're talking about the traditional therapeutic context, those of us that are even privileged enough to be able to afford that one hour, right. Or anything we do limit it is only limited in the success of it. This is not me saying, don't go get those, have those structures in place, those hours where you go do the things. My question is, observe what you're doing outside of that time, because that's where we're really keeping us stuck. That's where this patterning, possibly for our conversation now, Victoria, this lack of boundaries, right? That's where these dynamics are coming up and are keeping us stuck. So the question is, right, how do I consistently then begin to create change and maintain change in my life? And that's a much more difficult journey um, and that's why we have, you have to have that fire within, for lack of a better word, because there are many times where you have to be committed to choices that you're making, um, where there maybe is no one else around urging you to make those. So unless, to at least a small extent, you're doing it for yourself, that can grow, right? So I'm not saying I was like super, I'm not, I wasn't, let me be honest. When I started my journey, I was kicking and screaming in resistance for quite some time to do the things that I knew were going to make me feel better. I didn't want to. Um, so it can be a small seed that grows into motivation, but unless there's a seed, it's like you're saying, you go three times and then once that person's not looking, like your hand's back in the cookie jar or whatever. Well, there's such an obsession with instant gratification. Mm -hmm. I find this too with people asking about, you know, performance anxiety or how did you handle this as a volleyball player? And it's like, 
like it, it, it still affected me senior year. I just had to use the tools and put things into place and I still have to work on things now. I think the idea of snapping our fingers and just being happy doesn't really exist. And we unfortunately see it fed to us in different ways, whether it's online or um, from people putting up that front on social media. And you know, it's such a harder job than taking some magic pill. Yes, and I think it actually produces a lot of shame in people. Uh, why am I broken? Why can't I do this? Why does this appear so much harder for me? Um, and I, I, that's why I talk about the power of the subconscious, where these patterns live, because a lot of us wear a lot of shame when we, can't, when we don't see ourselves changing, especially if our patterning exists in relationships. So, uh, relationships are the place where we, you know, friends and family gaze upon our relationships where we can carry a lot of shame, you know, especially if you're someone who knows that their patterning and relationship doesn't end in the most fulfilling relationship. So, right. But yet we still find it's so hard to break that pattern. We're still attracted to the same type of person. And then we have friends gazing upon us saying, Hey girl, like this is not the, you know, don't you see? And the reality of it is no. I don't really see. I am so locked and then I can become so shameful. So I talk about all of this, you know, in hopes to offer a different reframe, a different level of understanding so that if anyone out there is listening, we don't have to be so shamed by this. If we just understand why we're stuck, that can give us the clarity of how to move forward. When you mention shame, I immediately think about diet culture. I mean, I talk a lot about body image and diet culture on my platform and, and disordered eating. And there's so much shame with, I can't lose the 10 pounds. I can't like my body. I can't do this. And then it's, 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 we never think, oh, maybe the problem is I'm trying to attain a body that's not realistic, not mm-hmm. I can't do this impossible diet. And I really wanted to talk to you and see how what your thoughts are on some of these things, especially like worthiness. I think there's a lot Mm -hmm. of, we seek being worthy, being enough. One of my favorite texts that you've sent out was, um, our egos have us believe our worthiness comes from being liked, but our soul knows worthy is what we already are and already will be. I love that one. Like when that came through my phone, I know they're just texts, but I was like, oh, that's so true. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, very, very true. We are all, I can't tell you how common some version of that unworthiness narrative is. It's quite universal um, as far as I've been observing it and, you know, clients when I used to see them in the community, I think it really resonates with a lot of us. Some version of I'm not worthy, I'm not lovable, you know, kind of the same idea. I'm not enough. How, so what is the soul? The ego says we, we can't be worthy unless we're liked, but the soul knows we are. What's the soul? Yeah. So the soul, the way I define the soul is I think, like I think I was saying earlier, the three parts of human, right? We have this mind that we're gifted with all of the cognitive faculties. We have this body, right? And then we have this other thing, or at least so I believe we do. Um, Another word, or the way that I kind of describe the soul in day-to-day, it's, it's that consciousness. Once you become aware, right, that there's, so say thoughts, our thoughts give us this first opportunity to view this distinction between thought, which is not me, the fact that you can view your thoughts, view meaning hear them, right? I can think something I'm not worthy, say, right? That just happened in my mind. Whom or what viewed that thought, right? So that's that indescribable kind of, hard to define entity that we could call soul. We could call, I call consciousness, right? The thing that observes. 
um, and like I said, thoughts. So anyone listening wants to tune in and the second they have your thought in their head, right? Ask themselves, who is the thinker? Is a lot of the times the way that's kind of worded. Um, so we can use the word soul, you know, spirit, consciousness. I mean, some people want to make a distinction between soul, spirit, right? But all more or less the viewer of all of the other crap, the ego say, that's not us. So similarly to in the beginning when we mentioned having a story, so whether it's Dr. Nicole LaPera with a huge Instagram following and healing like your story that someone would introduce you with, you would in that situation remind yourself, okay, that's a story based on past events, but I know that I am not, well, are you not those things? Because what if those things are good things, you know, that you worked Mm -hmm. hard for? It's hard Mm -hmm. to detach. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can say those are my experiences. You know, I've experienced those things um, in life, whether they're successes or accolades or titles, you know, even the fact that someone's calling me a title, I'm titled that because of my experiences, you know, the being that is me had experiences in life. We could separate those, but you're, you're really, I think you're illustrating something important because a lot of us don't do that. Even the, especially the positive stuff, we own it. And it's easier to own the positive stuff, right? I am like I'm successful or whatever it is. I'm smart. That's a, that's an identity that a lot of us like to own. I can make a case so that that's also not all you are. You're that and maybe the opposite of that too. That's what this, this, a lot of times we hear the concept of ego talked about in conjunction with the concept of shadow, right? Mm -hmm. So I can make an argument that you're smart and you're not smart, right? We are the whole of the spectrum. And the issue becomes, so even the good stories that we want to own as who we are, the work is to look at maybe the other side of it. What is the shadow of that look like? Because I can make a case that there's evidence of that in you too, because we are all things. Yeah, I really like the my being or my being experienced something. I think that helps definitely separate like, you know, the, the thing that you are has gone through this this history or was on this team or did so-and-so, but but, but you are also someone who could observe that memory. But I'm so glad you brought this up because I wanted to talk to you about confidence because confidence, and I've heard this from other psychologists, comes directly from our self-talk. So the things we say about ourselves. Now that can kind of, I think, be hard to navigate if we are relying our confidence on all those positives you just mentioned. I did well last game. I am successful. I am smart. If, if we're, if we're going to feed those and build those up, we're equally going to fall when one of those things isn't true. So how do we get confidence if we're being careful about self-talk? Or where do you think confidence comes from? Yeah, I think confidence is influenced by self-talk. I think confidence is built each and every time we show up for ourselves, which looks different for each of us. So where confidence comes, a lot of us live under what I call self-betrayal, right? We mean to do many things and we don't keep our own word. The more we keep our own word, the more we build confidence. Confidence also comes as we navigate situations, positive, negative, and neutral ones, right? We can become confident in our ability right, to tolerate stress, the stress of life. And I'm using stress as a really big overarching category for anything negative, right? So confidence comes through lived experience as well. Do you think confidence could be neutrality? Because I think we think confidence has to be, I'm super hyped, I love myself, I'm positive, I'm enthusiastic. But I almost think 
if you like confident, that's what, that could be a misconception. I think confidence could just be not judging anything. And then you do everything to the best of your abilities because you don't fear an, an outcome positive or negative. Mm -hmm. And it could be just connection with yourself. I am so confident in who I am. I mean, part of what the gift of self-observation, and this might seem like a really simplistic and maybe an obvious gift to why maybe some of you are even questioning why I'm calling it a gift. You get to see all of yourself. You get to know yourself. And that's when you become confident. When I'm so known to myself that I can be in the world in whatever instance it is in a moment where I'm shining and in a moment where I'm not shining, right? And I can trust myself to navigate that moment. That's what I believe confidence is. And it comes from an inner knowing. So, so it is a certain neutrality. I can view upon all of me, my light and my darkness, right? The things I'm good at and the things I'm not good at. I know myself in those ways now that I can confidently navigate situations even when they're hard. And, and to really clarify it, so you're saying you know yourself, it, you're not saying I, I'm confident because, uh, let's just, whatever, we'll talk about volleyball. I'm confident because I won the last game. It would be, I'm confident because I've been in an experience of a very tough game and I'm standing here now, sort of, so yeah. not attached to the end result. Yeah. And I, and I, and I can see moments where I have what feels a good game and this is the outcome and I wake up the next day. I mean, this sounds silly and I can have experiences where I deem it a bad game and I feel down and I wake up the next day. So now I know that going into game three, I'm a little bit more confident. So that's how I get to release the expectation because I trust myself to deal with it. Oftentimes, and we try to overpower our environments in a lot of ways by orchestrating people and their reactions, right? So that we can not violate our expectations or not violate our stories. When we, when we actually call ourselves into question, do the hard things, lose the game, not be proud of our, you know, performance and we're still okay. That's when we can let go of that expectation because for a lot of us not winning is so devastating because of all of the things we imagine it to mean and this idea that we won't be able to tolerate that when that happens. When that happens and we do, we're more confident. So now I can lose that expectation as I move forward. And expectations, I mean, I'm so guilty of expectation setting. I have expectations about whether it is the dinner, the way my boyfriend says hello to me. <laughs> everything so how I'm shaking my head emphatically because I was the expectation queen <laughs> really really like like how so give me some examples everything I mean I was gig smiling when you were saying all the things because I I mean from the way dinner you know was was prepared on my plate to how it would taste to uh the way the house would be kept or not kept to the way people would write greet me and what their silence meant and I mean, everything was an expectation. And I can relate to that, Victoria, from as long as I can remember, because I have, I have very few memories of childhood, but I do remember often being upset in friendships where friends were violating my expectations, where the birthday party didn't go as I wanted it to go, or my friend didn't invite me to come over as I wanted them to. So I was very well aware of expectations. So we need to become aware that we have them. Many of us do. So then how would you walk through a situation? Let's say we rewind to when you were really practicing this awareness. Let's say it is a birth, your birthday party. What are you saying to yourself that day? Like, I'm, it's just, I'm just going to, I'm just, are you even saying I'm just going to dinner tonight and it is what it is? Or are you saying I'm right here right now having breakfast and we'll get to dinner when we get to dinner? <laughs> yes. I mean, I think the more we can ground ourselves in the present moment, 
the better we are. And if you're relating to the conversation you and I having any listeners, chances are you're doing this future-based thinking probably all of the time, right? You're always looking toward the next moment. I remember in childhood, I'd be up I'd be at breakfast with my family and we would be contemplating what dinner was going to be for that day, right? So I was taught that we always look ahead or I was on at one nice restaurant and we're talking about the other nice restaurant we're going to go to for the next special occasion. It's like, well, what about the dinner we're at right now? So grounding yourself in, in the present moment in that conscious state I mean, goes a really, really long way, especially if you're someone who thinks about the future and then obviously generates expectations about what that future looked like. So the more present we say at breakfast, we can relieve ourselves of that. Doesn't there have to be some sort of expectation setting to successfully function in this society? Because you have to think about like what your paycheck's going to be versus what your rent's going to be. You have to think about making career moves. So how, what's the proper amount of time that I should be present and the okay amount that I can be looking to the future? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, that's planning, you know, and yes, we, we are the, the one creature, the one species as humans who can plan. We are gifted with the ability to look into the future for that purpose. So we can anticipate and plan. Um, issue is how often, are you doing that? You know, how much? So, because to speak to your point really simply, yes, of course, we need to have somewhat of goals, directions, and somewhat of an idea of how we might get there that could help us get there. How much time though? And I know for me, it was, I was spending all of my time in the future. Um, so for some people, you know, it's, it's A, being aware of if they are spinning their wheels always about the future, maybe having some prescribed time, you know, if it's business related, when you're at the business meeting with your partners is where you engage in planning. Some of us will do that with journaling, right? We might have a journal where we engage in maybe all of our future worry. And when that journaling practice is over and I close my journal, now I come back into the present um, or my planning journal, things like that. So we can kind of set aside time where we do that much more intentional planning that can help us succeed. If we're doing it all of the time, that's when we definitely want to make sure that we're being as present as possible. With all the topics we've discussed so far, there's these themes of maybe, so it's, it's stress or it's fear or it's, I'm not good enough, or my friends don't uh, think I'm cool. And how do all of these things play into mental health? Because I almost think the lack of consciousness is what leads to the anxiety or leads to the depression. Would you agree? What's the connection between the two? Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that was largely kept out of my program, which is why I'm so emphatic about evolution toward holistic. Our mind and our body are in constant communication up and down. Our mind is talking to our body. Our body is talking to our mind. Right. So when we have imbalances and then obviously we're going to throw the soul piece in there, right? When we're in balance in one or all of those areas, you know, that typically is what's underlying, whether it's physiological, you know, my hormones are in balance. My nervous system might be in balance. That's the body. You know, we might be just disconnected from all of our emotions entirely, or maybe only some emotions are acceptable, you know, in our families of origin, depending on how connected we are to our spirit, right? So imbalances are usually what's driving the symptoms that a lot of us are struggling with, whether or not it's actual physical symptoms, whether or not it's emotional symptoms, right? The depressions, the anxieties, the panic attacks, or whether or not it's our negative patterning in relationships, right? That's kind of the surface that's being fed by that underlying, as far as I see it, at least that underlying fire 
which is imbalance in those areas. When you say that, and I just, I'll use myself as an example, because I don't mind being uh, whatever, what would it be called? <laughs> the, uh, the tribute, um, whatever. <laughs> I feel like when my mental health issues manifested themselves, I was very imbalanced in the sense that my body and my muscles had to show up for five to six hours a day, perform at a very high level and do that six or seven days a week. And I also had to have my mind perform at that high level to tell my body what to do. And then I had no time to, uh, for self-care or for friends or for things that brought me joy. And yeah. so I, I like had to go through the motions. There's not an option of stopping. Um, a lot of people can relate whether it's their job and they have to pay the bills or they're on scholarship or whatever the situation is. Sometimes you have to do what you have to do. And it comes at the cost of not holistically being, being well. Yeah. 100%. I relate to that. And I also relate to, there was a time I, t I, I played uh, athletics in college too. So I'm definitely aware. Oh my Once gosh. That what did you do and where? I played, I played softball at Cornell. Oh my gosh. That yeah, is awesome. So, so I know what it's like to turn one's life over completely. Wait, uh, you totally get it. Let's, let's talk all about the yeah, student athlete. I, I totally get it. And so at that time, you know, I agree that there was, it was a necessity. I had no space. I had no literal time hours in my day. I had no bandwidth. I didn't have the tools to be more balanced. The sneaky thing that happened because my achievement, you know, playing athletics in college, which is a quite an achievement for both you and I, right? Like not everyone gets to do that. Athletics for me and academics. I mean, I was at Cornell, you know, I leaving school. That was for me, my channel, right? For all of this, for what my deepest sense of unworthiness. So while I, in college, it was it was necessary that I focus on these ways to achieve. So I was at a high performing academic and athletic Institute, right? What actually became more of a problem is after that, because in absence of, I have to, I was still functioning like I had to, if that makes sense. I was still chasing endless achievements and endless busyness, even when I wasn't necessarily having to, even when my environment didn't force me, I didn't have the coach on my back, I wasn't in college anymore, right? I had more freedom. A lot of us, because what, the deepest wound, right, is that not worthiness, that fire, right, is driving. I still was endlessly exhausting myself and living in an imbalanced way. Do you think it was Because that's what I was used to. To yes. avoid the silence, to avoid sitting with All yourself. All of it, to avoid that. That's how, I, that's how I assigned meaning to myself. That's how I felt like a good, loved little girl at one time in my family, right? So how I continue to feel loved in my relationships is I continue to perform, endlessly perform. And then the byproduct of not performing was silence. And then all of that crack comes to the surface. I didn't allow that to happen. In my silence, what I would do is I would medicate myself. That was in my 20s where I would go and I would be at the bar or I'd be smoking pot or I'd, I'd be numbing myself. Um, so it really took until I learned how to really fully stop, how to not achieve my value on what I was doing up to the surface then came all of this that I was largely not equipped to deal with. Speaking of this achievement, I've had, I've been lucky to have a good amount of Olympic medalists on this podcast. And all of them have said something similar, which is, you know, once you stand on that podium, that's not it. I mean, you, you think it's going to be it, but, but it's not. Um, and so do you think it's possible to achieve something 
that will be it for us as humans or is knowing that that is never going to happen something that you hope you know everyone realizes it depends on the intention right if you're on that podium because a lot of people are on that podium for similar reasons chasing filling a hole of some sport of some way for that some sport allowed them to feel fill right it gave them a story about themselves sorry it gave them a story about themselves that allowed them to feel good in a way but again it's only part of it so when we don't have to seek and when we can feel fulfilled by what we receive is when we are showing up for ourselves authentically right and if that if that then leads me to the podium and i did this for me because this is important to me you know then i feel like i've achieved something but a lot of us are on the podiums the proverbial podiums around the world are doing it based more on what we feel this means about us so the process, actually. not the goal. And it's yes. interesting how we've heard some of these things set at this lower level, you know, process, not the goal. And then really diving into it, there's such valid reasons as to why it is the process, not the goal. Um, and it's just, it's, it's so much to, to understand, especially in a society that is so based on achievement, where parents mm -hmm. put the, the grade A letter on the refrigerator where people want to take pictures with you you get more money more fame from winning things it's very hard to not be so achievement oriented mm -hmm. what do you think um is one of the main things someone could be doing to break through so if someone's listening to this and they think oh i'm chasing achievement I, I live for the, the grades. I, I live to succeed. How do you break out of that if you can't necessarily escape the lifestyle? So you can't necessarily stop being a student athlete. You can't just not be the CEO. How do you start integrating this holistic approach? Yeah, I love that question. I think it's a really good one. I think this awareness is the biggest first step coming to that really difficult awareness that there is meaning in these achievements for you and for many of us that's a process to get there right learning how to look at ourselves, learning how to you know observe our internal worlds and us in the world takes practice because so many of us are used to being unconscious then we're met with the truth of what we see which isn't always comfortable right when we do come to that realization that maybe we are someone who's chasing these accolades for this other reason that's painful. And a lot of us want to turn our, our eyes away at that point, right? So even allowing that in, right, which sounds like really simple, is a process that can be really healing. And then right, we always get this, now what do I do part, right? But that part I really focus on because that's part of healing. It's acknowledging. Some of us might understand, you know, in our past where this came from. Some of us might not. We don't have to. Like I referenced earlier, I have very little visual memories of my past. I don't need to because I see myself living those patterns now. So coming to that realization and acknowledging the truth that you have defined somewhat of your sense of self on these achievements, then that allows you to create the opportunity. So what we wanna do, and if you're someone that's, you know, if we can't change the context, if you are in that position where you have to continue to perform, what we wanna do is become a little more expansive. Find the areas outside of this type of achievement where you can start to cultivate feeling good about yourself in those ways, making yourself a fuller person that might involve, and I know this is something that I used to avoid at all costs, 
engaging with things that you're not the best at. I, for as long as I can remember, would refuse to play games that I couldn't win because I didn't like to not be good. I'm going to be honest because I was used to getting A's and excelling. So when I wasn't good at something, I deemed that game not for me. No, thank you. I'm all set over here with my games I'm good at, right? So part of it is, is learning, you know, how to cultivate areas. I've come to learn. I actually quite like art. I'm not the best at art, which is probably why I stopped pursuing art. I quite like to dance around. I actually, as a child, sucked at dancing. I was in the back row and I quit dance for softball, right? So what that means for me now is cultivating that wholeness, is cultivating an artistic expression in my life, is dancing, is doing things even when I'm not getting accolades and I probably won't ever get accolades for them. So I can feel good about myself based on who I am. So yes, in some ways I too am still performing at high levels and getting accoladed, but I'm also more full. I don't need that as much because I feel good about me over here when I'm doing subpar art and over here when I'm doing bad white girl dancing and over here, you know, I'm fine. It's so <laughs> comforting to hear you throughout this whole episode say, oh, I used to set expectations. Oh, I used to only do things I was good at because it makes me feel like, you know, this, what we'll call it enlightenment is, is possible for me because I think you can get in this trap of, oh, I'll never stop being insecure. I'll never think I'm actually smart enough to be in the room. And it's just cool that you definitely came from a place of, I've, I've been where the people are who I'm trying to help. Because sometimes, you know, people are, they just seem so, like they've never had done anything wrong. They can't relate. And so I just want to say, I love that you can relate. Um, and then one of the last things I want to talk to you about, and I don't know whether this is just me personally, I'm struggling with this, but I'm sure people are too, is knowing that when someone, you know, treats you poorly, so on like a, on a more basic level, so they, they consistently exclude you, um, or they hurt your feelings or they betray your trust. One of your quotes as well is, uh, wait, where is it? I have it here. Oh, ego. They betrayed me highest self. They allowed you to see who they were beyond the story you created of them. And I'm at a point where I understand. So I'm thinking, huh, it has nothing to do with them not wanting to hang out with me or me not being nice enough or me not sending the night, whatever text. It's just who they are. And it, it could have been anyone else. So I'm at a point where I, I know that, but I'm still like, but I'm annoyed. <laughs> I don't want to be a friend. <laughs> yeah. How do you progress through the next steps? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I also want to acknowledge that what I mean when I, you know, I say that too, is it's, it's, it's who they are. Let me clarify. It's their conditioning, right? I don't believe very many of us are functioning as that emness, as that who we are, as that consciousness of that soul. We are all living in a very conditioned way. So the only caveat, or maybe I'll shift that next time, right, is, it's their conditioning. It's not about you, though, is the main gist of that message. However, it's still information. And it's still important for us to honor how we feel, because our feelings are still real. So you honoring, that still upsets me. Mm -hmm. Allow it to be, right? Give those feelings light. Don't live in them like a lot of us do, right? Don't ruminate over the thing for days, weeks, sometimes years, decades, right? We're now feeling that same feeling allow it to express itself, be in it, be upset about it, right? And then, right, be back in the present moment. And I assure you, feelings do come to an end. And use the information that you then consistently see of this person 
to determine your next course of action, which might be shift, put up a boundary, shift the dynamic in a relationship. For some of us, end the relationship, right? It's really about cultivating the word and, right? Not but. I can understand where they're coming from. So that invalidates my feelings and necessitates that I stay in a relationship with that person. No, I can understand where they're coming from and I can feel upset and I can decide to now put up a new boundary in this relationship to keep myself safe. And I love the boundary setting, but to me, it doesn't feel completely peaceful. Like I have a boundary set up with someone and when I see them or hang out, you know, I can't help but think it's not a hundred percent. It's 80%. -hmm. That's just something you learn to live with because you realize you can't even have any percentage if it's not that. Well, some, yeah, some relationships, you know, our relationships look different. Let me say this globally. You know, and I think a lot of us try to apply a one-size-fits-all model to all of our relationships, and that's not how humans are. You're going to connect differently and in different depths with different people. So you might feel 80% in one relationship. You might feel 20% in one relationship, and maybe the 20% is a shared interest you two have. You like to watch birds together, your bird watch, whatever, you know, over here. And you might have 95% in this relationship over here, right? So we need to learn how to tolerate differences in relationships, which means then we acknowledge and accept, possibly we remove the expectation that this person is any different because right now they're not. And then we determine whether or not that 80% relationship works for us. Some might decide that they, it does. And once I relieve the expectation that they give me a hundred, I might be pretty comfortable in this 80%. Right. Or I might not. And for people listening, I think the easiest example I think is like, you have that one friend who you have such a great time with, but I'm not going to tell you my family problems. I don't yes. trust you. Yeah. You might, you might tell a lie, but that doesn't mean you're not super fun to hang out with, but yeah. I just know you're not my friend. I, t- I tell my secrets to. Um, and I think that that's, you're not going to have a lot of friends if you expect all of them to be everything for you. And then the right. very last thing, what other people think about us, caring what other people think about us. I, I find that in researching a lot of your teachings and one of the quotes, again, I could li- I literally could quote you all day. It says, um, the ego creates a full-time job of managing the perceptions of others, but the soul is at peace with being misunderstood. And that's really spoke to me because I'll get, I'll get hate comments online about whatever my content or my intentions. And I used to be like, I can't believe they think this of me, but now I'm like, hmm, I know what I, what I meant in posting this. And you don't understand, mm-hmm. but I don't need you to understand. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah. it's such a cathartic feeling yeah. to not try to have everyone side yes. with you. Yeah. The power of being misunderstood. I'm actually going to talk a lot about that in, in the book that I'm now writing because that's how incredibly important. So, the, so we are all having and can share, you know, different realities, you know, and that's, that is the reality. We are all so subjective. So oftentimes we're not going to get someone to see exactly as we see. And we are going to hear things reflected back to us that don't fit who we are. So to this, I say two things, other people's feedback, someone who's not me, for instance, is inherently a little more objective than I'm able to be about myself because I am me. So someone, especially a well-meaning someone, someone who's separate from me can offer possibly helpful feedback. So I'm not here saying close your ears to feedback because that's not helpful. I've heard many hard truths from people that I can trust and care about me, even if I wanted to knock them out when they first told me the truth that have helped me. 
So this is by no means me saying, if you ever hear a counter opinion, especially from strangers on the internet, that it's immediately wrong, because that's not true. You mm -hmm. know, it can possibly be something that's helpful. However, it's not all helpful and it's not all about us. So what is really helpful and important is to hear what people say, right? The way I, I frame it is I, I take it, I kind of try it on for size, right? I, I explore this. Like, can, can you see a scenario where you are like this person is perceived to be? Mm -hmm. And see how that sits, right? And once you are in alignment with yourself, then you can begin to differentiate whether or not that's that hard pill to swallow feedback that's helpful or whether or not this is more about that person and their subjectivity. And if that's the case, right, I don't, I cannot take it personally. You know, it's, it's a practice. I have to cultivate the ability to do that. And I can allow myself to be misunderstood because I also know that I do that to others, right? I'm viewing people's messages through my own lenses of feedback. I've practiced though and continue to practice over time with separating those lenses out and being more objective. However, that's a practice and you have to cultivate that. So it's about hearing what people are saying, right? And trying it on for size. And then you're the ultimate. So I, I went through a lot of that, Victoria, too, where I would try on for size everything people said about me, question myself. And it was painful. Um, and it took, you know, centering myself, centering myself, grounding myself, grounding myself, and really just staying connected to who I am to be able to differentiate messages that are for me and that aren't for me. Right. And just knowing the way that we've previously projected, whether it's our anger, our insecurities on others, that they could equally be projecting yeah. their, their pain onto us. Mm -hmm. um, well, I've just had such a great time talking with you. Thank you so much. This has been so special. I feel like we covered literally everything. As we're going through this, I'm like, there's a million things we've talked about. I love it. So thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. This was really great. And I, I love this. So I could continue to talk and talk and talk. <laughs> I know that's how I feel. If you all enjoyed that conversation, please go on your Instagram and type in the.holistic.psychologist to follow her Instagram. It is unbelievable. You could spend hours just diving through her content and learning and healing. And please go follow her and also check out her YouTube channel. It is incredible. The videos she uploads just to help us heal. They're free. They're incredible. Check those out for sure. And thank you again for listening to this episode of Real Pod. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can give this a rating and review it. That would mean a lot to me if you have not given it five stars, hopefully, and also left a review. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your time today. And I'm really grateful that we all were able to spend time with Dr. Nicola Para. And I will see you all back here next week with another guest. I hope you have an amazing week. And one last thing I'll say, we remember from her takeaways, is you are not flawed or shameful for needing to do this work on yourself. We are all doing this work on ourselves. So we are in this together, and I hope you go attack the day.